Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Thursday morning, an advisory panel convened to decide whether the Food and Drug Administration will approve the first coronavirus vaccine to be administered in the U.S. This vaccine from drug manufacturer Pfizer and German firm BioNTech is one of two vaccines submitted for approval by the FDA. Dozens more are still being developed. The potential approval of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine is big news for our country, which faces overtaxed intensive care units, hospitals running out of beds, and a growing number of cases and deaths from the virus every day. This week, for the first time since the pandemic began, the U.S. reported more than 3,100 deaths in a single day. The need for a vaccine is urgent, and the Trump administration, for months, has boasted of its efforts to bring a vaccine to the American people with unprecedented speed. Now, it appears at least one vaccine is likely here. Though at first, after it's approved, it will only be available to some healthcare workers and nursing home residents and staff. For most Americans, a vaccine likely won't be available until at least spring, which means we have several more months before this pandemic can start to get under control. The Trump administration has touted vaccine development as a major accomplishment in its COVID-19 response. As I've stated all along, and I guess as you saw pretty vividly, I heard about the, uh, I heard about what they were going to show prior to my coming. Uh, you saw that very few people thought that this was possible. Uh, of course, they'll be saying now, we always told you it was so, but we have them saying a little bit different. But uh, it has been incredible and it will end the pandemic. It will end the pandemic and we're working President with President Trump held a news conference Tuesday to celebrate the vaccine and credit his own work in making the advances possible. Today, we're on the verge of another American medical miracle. And that's what people are saying. People that aren't necessarily big fans of Donald Trump are saying whether you like him or not, this is one of the greatest miracles in the history of modern day medicine or any other medicine, any other age of medicine. American companies were the first to produce a verifiably safe and effective vaccine. Together, we will defeat the virus. In particular, Trump's repeatedly credited the White House's Operation Warp Speed initiative with providing the money and resources the government and private companies need to bring a vaccine to the population quickly. Before Operation Warp Speed, the typical time frame for development and approval, as you know, uh, could be infinity. And we were very, very happy that uh, we were able to get things done at a level that nobody has ever seen before. The gold standard... Vaccine. But Pfizer, the company behind the vaccine awaiting FDA approval, has distanced itself from Operation Warp Speed. And critics say the initiative has fallen short on goals of delivering 300 million or so doses of vaccine by the end of the year. So just how much did the Trump administration's efforts directly affect vaccine development? Has Operation Warp Speed done more to help the process than our government's pre-existing pandemic response system? What's hindered the process and what's helped? And who deserves credit? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. I went to get some answers from someone who knows quite a bit about this subject. 
My name is Nicole Lurie. I'm a primary care doctor and I currently work for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which is the largest funder right now of COVID vaccines outside of the United States, but was formed as a lesson learned after Ebola to develop vaccines for potentially epidemic diseases. Prior to that, I served as the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. I was very much involved in our responses to H1N1 and to Ebola and to Zika, all of which required intensive efforts to make vaccine. So it's safe to say you know a lot about vaccine development. (laughs) To get the most out of my conversation with Dr. Lurie, I wanted to start by asking her about the role the government usually plays in the development of vaccines. How big is the government's footprint in the vaccine-making process? Well, when the government is not in the midst of a large pandemic, the government is involved in a couple of ways. First of all, through NIH, there's always a lot of basic science research that goes on to learn about different pathogens, different viruses and bacteria. And in addition, in BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, there is a requirement that the federal government make vaccines and other countermeasures against threats to our national security, whether they are from bioterrorism or from naturally occurring diseases. So day in, day out, there is an effort that is seamless across CDC, NIH, and BARDA that works on vaccine development. DOD is also an essential part of this. So normally developing a vaccine is this multi-year process, but that was reduced to a matter of months to find a vaccine for the for the novel coronavirus. Can you explain what had to happen from a federal policy standpoint to make development of this vaccine possible at such a fast clip? Well, first of all, I want to correct a little bit of a misunderstanding here. The public has this impression that we just started working on vaccines and especially mRNA vaccines you know, earlier this year. In fact, as a lesson learned after the H1N1 pandemic, the federal government took the position that it needed to shift its strategy from what we call a one bug, one drug approach to a platform approach in which we could potentially make a generic platform where you might be able to make a vaccine against a new pathogen really quickly. So in fact, the government has been working on things like mRNA vaccines and other platforms for almost 10 years. Just a note here, messenger RNA, or mRNA, teaches cells to build the protein found on the surface of the coronavirus. The two vaccines submitted for FDA approval, the one from Pfizer and another one from the biotech company Moderna, both rely on mRNA. Other vaccines in development don't use mRNA, but rely on other science, like injecting a harmless version of the virus into patients. Platforms for many different scientific approaches to vaccines have been in development for years, as Dr. Lurie was explaining. So fortunately, through a series of successive improvements, some of those platforms were ready to move forward when the coronavirus struck. So what pieces of the development process were expedited then? We had sort of the pieces in place, the fundamentals in place for these vaccines, but what was sped up in the past few months? So a number of things were sped up. First of all, in general, we didn't pause between the various phases of vaccine development or didn't pause for very long between phase one, phase two, phase three. 
in some cases, a number of things were done in parallel instead of in sequence because we all knew that we were in a race against the virus. And then finally, we started activating manufacturing capacity and building more early on because we knew if this persisted, we would need to manufacture a lot of doses and that we would need to start that process, which is very expensive, but to start that process long before we knew if those vaccines worked. So how much of that expedited process would have happened in any pandemic setting, sort of on autopilot? Were there pre-existing plans for, for activating this immediate urgent need? I think there's precedent for it, in fact, in H1N1, when in fact we made a vaccine against a novel flu strain very quickly. Now that was easier because we all knew how to make flu vaccine. And we were confident enough in the vaccines that we were making that we started the manufacturing before the clinical trials were complete. But it wasn't a novel idea. It's also fair to say that this has happened around the world, not just in the U.S. I guess I'm trying to sort of determine how much this particular administration factored into the expedited development of this vaccine or whether or not we might have seen this under any administration given the circumstances. I think it's a great question. In general, for most components of this, we would have seen this in any administration under the circumstances. I think one of the things that that happened early on, as we saw, as you know, the day or the day after the sequence was downloaded, scientists around the world, including at NIH and including at BioNTech and others, downloaded the sequence and started working on a vaccine. Here, Dr. Lurie is referring to the genetic sequence of the coronavirus that Chinese scientists released back in January of 2020. I think what was a little bit slow in the U.S. was enough of a recognition that a pandemic was coming, that we could pour the billions of dollars into it that we ultimately did early. And so while vaccine development started and started ramping up, you know, I asked myself a little bit, had the warp speed money been available sooner, would we have been ahead of where we are now? And I think it's an unanswerable question. But the processes to do this, to work across government, across agencies, are processes that I think started in the Bush administration, carried all the way through the Obama administration. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I want to ask you a little bit more about Operation Warp Speed, because I think even I'm a little bit confused about how Operation Warp Speed factors into vaccine development and how we've gotten ourselves up to this point. So was Operation Warp Speed a separate initiative from sort of the government activation to create this vaccine? The federal government has had a process in place to coordinate across all the agencies to activate and to develop vaccines, including quickly. And that system has been in place for a long time. It's got a terrible name, which is the FEMC or the Public Health Emergency Medical Countermeasure Enterprise. And I chaired this for eight whole years, right? And it is a system where we pull together all the right people at CDC, NIH, BARDA, FDA, DOD, 
Homeland Security, Agriculture, everybody. And we work through all of the processes involved in making vaccine. My impression has been that at the beginning of coronavirus, it did not activate and it did not activate effectively. And ultimately, when there was a recognition of the need to activate, Operation Warp Speed stood up and was created. It was a mechanism to coordinate and get all the different parts of government working really closely together. What I think might be a little bit different about Warp Speed than prior efforts is the scale of it, the amount of money that's been put into it, which is very welcomed, but also a lot of the complexity of managing the supply chain of raw materials all the way through the development process. And there, I think the input of DOD, almost as a force multiplier, has been very welcomed. So Warp Speed's biggest influence might be in the distribution. Oh, not that I don't think the distribution, but long before you get to distribution, remember that just like we saw problems in the supply chain for the diagnostics and we learned about the swabs and the Q-tips and the reagents and all that, there are lots and lots of raw materials and components that go into the development and manufacturing of vaccine. And they come from all over the world and there's intense competition for those raw materials because so many different developers are making vaccines. And so I think a lot of the contribution has been sort of in this back end that nobody sees identifying, you know, where the raw materials are, getting them to the right place at the right time, getting them there in time. So it's fair to say that without warp speed, that process might have been more difficult, acquiring those materials and getting them where they need to go. I don't know. I think the prior process probably would have brought in DOD to be able to help, whether it would have been at this scale and whether it would have been with a general in charge of this, I don't know. We're facing a dire situation and any administration facing a dire situation is going to do unprecedented and creative things. Okay, so I want to pivot from talking about development to talking about approval, which we might see as early as today, and distribution thereafter. So Trump has reportedly questioned the FDA head about why the UK approved Pfizer's vaccine before the US. Has the president's informal pressure like that had a significant impact on this vaccine approval process and timeline? Well, I think it's fair to say that earlier on, we were all very concerned about the president's pressure on the FDA, particularly because of the emergency use authorizations for things like hydroxychloroquine and convalescent plasma and the lack of emergency use authorizations for many of the diagnostic tests. And it's been widely perceived that that's had to do with a lot of pressure on the FDA. I think, as you know, the scientific communities push back really hard And the FDA itself has pushed back really hard and said, we really need to stand up for scientific integrity here. And if we're going to be giving a vaccine to many millions of healthy people, we need to be sure it's safe and effective. So it's great to see this VRPEC meeting happening today and to see us now going through the scientific process and the regular order of things in order to decide whether to authorize a vaccine. That said, it's obvious that there is constant day-to-day pressure on the FDA 
to move quickly. And this process will soon be handed over to President-elect Joe Biden, who's pledged to deliver 100 million vaccine shots in the first 100 days of his administration. But Pfizer has said that they may not be able to supply the U.S. with more doses until next summer, in part because the Trump administration turned down an offer from Pfizer to buy more doses. Should that be interpreted as a misstep by the Trump administration, the failure to buy those doses? You know, I've been hearing about that and reading about that, and it's not at all clear what happened. You know, I think that there has been a plan to develop six or eight vaccines, and if they are successful, to buy 100 plus million doses from multiple manufacturers. Just that the mRNA vaccines came first, and they are highly, highly effective at first blush. And so from that perspective, it certainly would be desirable to get more if that were possible. How much will the lower number of doses available from Pfizer potentially hamper a Biden administration in getting the public inoculated? Will we see a big impact from this? Well, we can only provide vaccinations if there's vaccine. I think the Biden administration's goal is going to be to distribute and administer all of the vaccines that are available in the shortest amount of time. It might also want to be taking a look at whether there are other mechanisms to further scale up or speed up any of the manufacture of vaccines. And I believe people are looking at those sorts of issues pretty closely now and in light of all of the news. So on Tuesday, President Trump signed an executive order that told pharmaceutical companies to prioritize Americans for vaccine distribution. Do you understand what that executive order accomplishes? Is it enough to remedy any lack of doses we might have? I don't completely understand what that accomplishes. I have not heard that it is being used to block the export of vaccine from the United States to other countries for which the companies already have signed contracts that they need to deliver on. What I would say is I think any attempt to do that would be very, very short-sighted. In the past, we've had big crises when we haven't had domestic manufacturing capacity. And that was early on part of the impetus for working so hard on pandemic flu manufacturing and rebuilding the manufacturing base in the U.S. If companies were to see that they couldn't reliably do business around the world if they were based in the United States. I would imagine it could be a pretty big inhibitor for deciding to do business here. And as we're all focused on moving manufacturing of all kinds back to the U.S., that would seem really short-sighted to me. In addition, a lot of the raw materials for these vaccines come from other places in the world. And we wouldn't want to start to see a tit-for-tat retaliation of blocking raw materials because we're blocking doses. So I think that the focus ought to be on distributing the doses that are ready to be distributed as rapidly as possible and looking at any other possible strategies to ramp up supply. I want to ask you about one last piece of the puzzle, which is the messaging around safety to the public. I know that there's a vaccination confidence campaign rolling out from the White House. What does something like that look like? How will we instill confidence that this vaccine is safe and effective? First of all, it's very hard to talk about a vaccine that doesn't exist. And so it's going to be important for the FDA to determine for each of the vaccines that they are safe and effective and not simply rely on press releases to do that. So once the FDA does make that determination, I think it's going to be a multi-pronged strategy. Some of it has to do with, quote unquote, a confidence campaign. 
But I think that the data also tell us that there are a number of other things that we can do to help with vaccine uptake. Some of it's going to depend on who the messenger is and whether people are able to hear about vaccine from people that they trust in their communities and in their social circles. Other components of this are going to be dependent upon how easy or difficult it is for people to get vaccine, whether we can be proactive, for example, about setting up an appointment for them to get a vaccine rather than waiting for them to do those things themselves. All those sort of little nudges that take people where they are and help facilitate or make it easier for them to get vaccines. And then obviously, we all have to do a lot of listening to people about their views about vaccines. I want to ask you a final question, and that's about how history will view who gets quote-unquote credit for this vaccine. Will history likely view this as the quote-unquote Trump vaccine or the quote-unquote Biden vaccine, or should credit go not to presidents at all and, and elsewhere? I think credit goes to the unprecedented scientific collaboration around the world that scientists and developers all over the world have been pretty united in an effort to say we're with this vaccine and we're going to defeat it. All right, Dr. Lurie, thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? I have a quick request for all of you. Here at Can He Do That? We want to hear answers from you to one particular question. What are your biggest hopes and your biggest fears for the next administration? We might use your voice in a future episode of the show. Let us know by leaving a voicemail at 202-618-0715. That's 202-618-0715. Thanks. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 